0: Perhaps it was only a matter of time before we started to see movie releases start to get pushed back and, you know, production of movies and TV shows that are
1: currently shooting uh, being suspended for, you know, at least a couple of weeks. There's a bit of a paradigm shift here in that some of the studios have announced that movies will be available for rent from home when they're still in theaters. Yeah. Like
0: I think it was NBC universal. They're uh, putting out right. a whole bunch of uh, movies for like a, a pretty high, like the first weekend kind of price. I think the like, it's like $20 us or something. So more than you would pay for like the ticket itself, if you went to a movie th- uh, theater, but you know, most people are arguing you, you would end up spending more than $20 us by the time you factored in, like, you know, if you're, Uh, parents and you had to get babysitting or, you know, the concessions and stuff like that. So, yeah, because you're paying for the whole family rather than per person. Right. So exactly. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's that kind of worked into their math there. But but yeah, you're right. It is a paradigm shift because uh, the exhibitors have been fighting this kind of move for a long, long time because they know that uh, if people think that they can get the biggest, hottest releases the weekend that they're supposed to come
1: out in theaters at home, uh, there'll be even less incentive to go. Well, we just had this past weekend, so March 13th to 15th was the lowest uh, box office gross in over 20 years, I believe, with only 50 million, which is down 60 percent from the previous weekend. So I'm sure a lot of you had heard about that. So out of curiosity, um, I kind of went back and and looked at this weekend specifically, uh, going back the past 20 to 25 years. And I landed on 1998. This was a weekend. So it kind of fell on the March 17th to 19th. So it's not like the exact dates, but it's the same weekend. The highest grossing movie that weekend in 1995 from March 17th to 19th was a movie called Outbreak. Oh. A a medical disaster film directed by Wolfgang Peterson, starring Dustin Hoffman, Renee Russo, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, Cuba Gooding Jr., Donald Sutherland. So it was like an A-list cast. Right. And it's a film about an Ebola-like virus from Zaire in Africa uh, that later appears in Cedar Creek, California. And I just thought this was like, Either the craziest coincidence or there's just something about March that just where things go really funny. Uh, I hadn't seen anybody else talking about that. That's that's mm-hmm. a pretty good find. I thought that was really interesting.
0: We have seen things like, uh, you know, Bond has been uh, pushed back. Oh, that was the worst one. The Quiet Place yeah. Part 2. Mulan. Mulan, yeah. Um, pretty much like any any big blockbuster that was set to open in the next few weeks uh, that, you know, the studios are thinking be too big of a risk to a bring uh, hordes of people all together in in uh, confined spaces for for a couple of hours at a time uh, but be on the mon- money side of things they knew that if the movie stayed in theaters they would uh, they would take a huge hit and they'd probably get a, a bad rep from like public health officials and that kind of thing so it was just a it was a bad scene all the ra- way around going to the movies that's a good segue into our intro isn't it didn't you see onward no i didn't no i stayed away <laughs> oh uh, but I did I did see something okay. else. So uh, yeah, I, I, I snuck in one movie before things started to get really scary.
1: All right, well, I was just going to say that this is a great time if you're staying away from movie theaters to catch up on all the sc- streaming shows and streaming movies that have been released or have been on your list for God knows how long. For me, it probably goes back three years.
0: Yeah, and I, I have a few of those too. So uh, we'll be talking about that at this, uh, this time on the show. Uh, the one the new release that I did get to see in theaters... And uh, we'll take it from there. Welcome to episode 70 of the Extra Buttery podcast, free flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. I'm Robert Snow, joining you from Toronto, and with me today is my co-host Jason Chen in Vancouver. Both of us uh, hunkered down in various sta- uh, states of, like, you know, quasi-quarantine. Which is, you know, not a bad way to do a podcast, but uh, uh, we'll see how long we find ourselves in this situation. I did go to the theater, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, the generally speaking, the uh, the prevailing kind of advice that uh, a lot of like governments and uh, and things are giving people is like, you know, you, you don't unless you you have been tested positive with this thing and you're exhibiting symptoms, you know, you can make certain judgment calls about like going out to get groceries and things, but they are trying to dis- discourage people from movie theaters and like large gatherings and that kind of thing. So that's your PSA up front there. Yeah.
1: So I took my mom to see Knives Out because she hadn't seen it yet. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I swear, including Cineplex employees and the people who are at the movie theater, there's, I I, I think maybe 10 people there. Yeah. 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 Which was actually, like, kind of a nice experience. I, I kind of like having an auditorium to myself. Sure,
0: yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a rough time for Cineplex because they've announced that, you yeah. know, as of when we're recording this episode, uh, they've cut the num- total number of tickets that they're selling by uh, 50% in an effort to create more space wow. between people in the, each screening. Yeah. Um, but they haven't... It's a
1: rough time for everyone, though, right? Every industry...
0: Yeah, I mean, business owners everywhere, yeah. Um, but, but for Cineplex, you know, they and uh, similar chains in the States and uh, everywhere around the world, um, the, they haven't ch- made the call to close entirely because I guess they feel like their bottom line would take a huge hit. And there was one report that was making the rounds that said that uh, Cineworld, the big UK-based exhibitor movie theater chain that recently got approved to buy Cineplex here in Canada they were in a bit of a tricky situation debt wise and
1: Ooh. if the
0: if this thing dragged out and they were forced to close like all their theaters for a number of months and they were they weren't even doing like 50% screenings um, they might actually default on their debt. So
1: oh wow, so the deal might fall through.
0: Yeah, so it's it's kind of in uh, sort of shaky territory right now. I mean, I, I, I think it would be pretty unprecedented if they did have to close for that long period of time, like three or four months. but uh, yeah, that would be killer. That would suck. I think it would it would you would see other repercussions in other parts of the economy, too. But uh, certainly for like movie theater exhibitors, like it's a it's a scary time because I think, you know, it just goes to show
1: how precarious the whole business has become. Yeah, well, because I mean, especially since it's like the concessions they make money off of. Yeah. So even if you buy like a super ticket or whatever it is um they're not making that much money off it cuz you're not buying the popcorn that's like 90% profit. Yeah. Um you're not buying the pop that's 90% profit and all this kind of stuff. I for one am kind of glad that they stayed open but there are a lot of businesses that have said, you know what? Screw it. If if no one's going to come in, especially a lot of retail stores, if people aren't going to come in, we might mu- we might as well close it down because we don't want the staff to get infected sure. or even have to pay the staff if they're trying to save money. But that being said, uh, this is a great time to hunker down, grab a hot bowl of soup, grab a drink, yeah, sit down in front of the TV and just blast through your watches. Yeah, list. and blast through your watches. So, so what have you watched? What did you watch recently? Well, the first one. Uh, this is actually a theatrical release,
0: although it. it Given A, the quality of the movie and B, the state of uh, events as they currently are, it'll probably end up available on streaming a lot sooner than the filmmakers <laughs> expected. Uh, but we're, this is a little bit of uh, Canadian content here. Uh, so the movie I'm, I'm talking about is Run This Town.
1: It's a good story. Everyone's story is always a good story until it's not. Well, if you like it, I'm pitching it. Oh, Jesus Christ. You have to give me a couple of days before you do anything here. Do
0: you think it's real? I don't
1: know. When you're asked your opinion, you have to have one. What were you looking for? Um, I don't know. I thought that maybe somebody might know something. So why is it CanCon that always like just kind of falls flat on its face? Why?
0: I don't know. I really don't know. I think there's there's probably a very interesting like... Psychological study, or, or some sort of like research to be done on why Canadian movies don't really grab our attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, they're not to say there are there are no good Canadian movies, but it feels like uh, they. It's, it's a lot rarer to get one that really resonates with, with people beyond our borders. So tell me about this uh, Rob Ford movie. Yeah, so this is the, if uh, people listening uh, think back to the spring of 2013 or maybe the couple of years preceding that, we had a mayor here in the city of Toronto named Rob Ford. And he was, uh, you know, he had been elected on uh, promise of like sticking his neck out for the little guy and he was all about tax cuts and trying to uh, find little teeny tiny savings in every part of the city budget that uh, you know uh, cutting back on the number of staplers that the city bought or how much paper that they bought, things like that. <laughs> um, and he had a very populist kind of like, um, you know, he was, he, he stayed on as a, his, uh, as a high school football coach while he was still in office and he carved out time for that. And he would make personal house calls to everyone who called his office, even though there's like 3 million people living in Toronto. You know, he was that kind of guy, but in the background of all of this, he had this, uh, very public battle with alcoholism and drug abuse and he had instances of like racist rants being captured on uh, cell phones you know when he went to buy food at a Jamaican restaurant he went and launched into this kind of drunken rant and you know vi- the videos
1: were everywhere and everyone was talking about it and-, and his background too right like his family had I think allegedly been accused of drug dealing or yeah having gang ties
0: yeah there were all kinds of like whispers and rumors and things like that so what ended up happening was um, an election happened, but he was actually too sick to stand for re-election, so he stepped down. And then a couple of years after that, he passed away from cancer. And after he after he died, there the stories kind of calmed down. But when in the thick of it, uh, city hall was this like uh, chaos zone where. There, The media were chasing him around constantly. He was hosting these crazy press conferences with all kinds of uh, vulgar outbursts. He admitted to having smoke crack cocaine. He made very disparaging comments about female staff. It was, it was a, uh, as Robin Doolittle from the Toronto Star, one of the reporters who was really on top of the case, she described it as crazy town, and she wrote a book with that in the title. Uh, so that brings us to this movie run this town, which initially hit the festival circuit. I think it was at um, Sundance and maybe South by Southwest last year.
1: Yeah, South by Southwest. Yeah.
0: And it's directed by uh, a younger director. His name is Ricky Tolman. And probably like the kind of the banner piece of this whole project was the fact that they got Damian Lewis, who is best known as the star of the first few seasons of uh, Homeland and uh, now the star of uh, Billions. Band of Brothers, baby. Yeah, he's, he came out of Band of Brothers. He's an English actor, but he's played a lot of American roles. He won a Golden Globe for Homeland. So he's, you know, not maybe not A-list, but he's, he's making his way up there. And um, he actually signed on to play Rob Ford in this movie, albeit like in a huge fat suit with a lot of prosthetic makeup and stuff like that. And that was kind of like a bit of an interesting thing because... Normally, Canadian projects, especially like Canadian politics projects, wouldn't get that kind of star power, even if it's like only like mid-tier star power. And then a few other like recognizable names signed on as well. You had um, Ben Platt, who's best known for like the Pitch Perfect movies. Uh, He came in as like a young reporter. Scott Speedman, some people might know him from like... I guess he's like he's a canadian actor but he's done some underworld. yeah some movies like underworld things like that uh nina dobrev and um jennifer ale
1: underrated jennifer is really underrated but okay sorry <laughs> continue
0: <laughs> but when the movie was like firing up production it managed to get a whole bunch of drama going because people assumed that uh ben platt was cast as a young reporter and that he would be playing the reporter who was chasing the rob ford story but if he's chasing the rob ford story then where's robin doolittle the reporter from The Star, who was instrumental in the initial coverage. It, has she been turned into a dude? Well, no. The The director was very quick to point out that they're not telling the real story about the Rob Ford chaos. They're t- telling stories about kind of like sidelines characters, uh, uh, political aides, and millennial reporters and people who were kind of in the periphery of the story, but were never like actually involved in it. And they claim that that's because they didn't want to minimize the work of the real people who were involved. But to me, the effect of that is like we just get a sidecar story where what we want. This is the
1: Robin movie when we wanted the Batman. Yeah, movie. exactly.
0: That's a good way of putting it. Like you know, there's there's definitely some value in a Robin movie uh, because we certainly have like shows like Teen Titans and stuff like that. But ultimately, you do want a bit of Batman and that's what we get here we get this movie where we spend all this time chasing these kind of uh millennial young professional types um uh, both political aides at city hall who are trying to protect Rob Ford and the the reporter played by Platt who's trying to track down the story but none of them are very good at their jobs so they're inha- <laughs> they're inherently hard to root for and we never like we never see them cross paths or like uh We don't see them do anything to kind of like oppose each other. You never get a sense that Mm -hmm. they're trying to outmaneuver each other. And in an interview, Tolman, the director, mentioned that we're supposed to see Ben Platt's characters being bad at his job. He's supposed to be entitled as like a, a young journalism school graduate who won a writing prize at school, who feels like he's owed the chance to cover a big political story. Uh, But doesn't have the reporting chops. Mm -hmm. So we see him like kind of fumble the whole thing. And he he briefly gets a shot at maybe getting a copy of the crack uh, cocaine video Mm -hmm. before anyone else. But he kind of uh, he's not very convincing when he meets with his source. And so it kind of slips his grasp. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, so he kind of sucks at it. So
1: (laughs) why should I care that? Right. You right. know, and it wasn't the story that I think it, it, it that was advertised. Right. I think that gets me a lot about movies is that. Yeah. when They put like the central issue that is very widely known front and center and and then you go into the movie and then you realize it's totally about something else Yeah. and the thing that they publicize is sort of like a bit piece or a side piece that always got me yeah again this is this goes back to like the the born legacy stuff but yes, anyway yes there's
0: a bit of that yeah and well you feel it in other ways too because um mm-hmm. you know uh not to be too pa- I, I mentioned this in my review on on kinetoscope.ca but you kind of feel the the smaller budget of this project because right okay long scenes where it really feels like they were shooting on a tight schedule with not a lot of extras, not a lot of like production design or anything like that because so it feels empty. It feels empty. It feels like it's all happening in the middle of the night and there's no one around mm-hmm. and the it's just it there's no energy to a lot of the scenes when it should be like a very tense political thriller kind of thing. Right, right. Um and then you also notice it with Damian Lewis because they kind of take like a Jaws approach to it where they nev- they don't show Damian Lewis as Rob Ford until what feels like half an hour or more into this 90 minute movie. Mm-hmm. And when he finally shows up, it, it, it feels like a letdown. And that's what the movie's been building to. Like he's been kept in the shadows this whole time. And then he finally shows up and you're like, it's not Rob Ford. Like anyone who remembers him on like his appearances on Jimmy Kimmel when he was at the height of everyone talking about him, you know. Ultimately, he's not, he wasn't like an out-and-out monster. He had like a warmness to him that, you know, caused him to be elected as as mayor, you know, And, uh, Mm -hmm. and the screenplay doesn't really capture that side of him. It just presents him as this like... Uh, you know, sea monster living li- living off the edge of the map, and it's maybe
1: because he was not central to the movie. It was difficult to flush him out.
0: Yeah, and I don't know what why they chose to sideline him so much. I guess they were trying to put the focus on these young people who were caught up in the churn. But right, if their story isn't very interesting, and then we don't have anything much from Lewis to really chew on. Right, there's not a whole lot left. So it was kind of doomed from the start
1: because the focus was wrong.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I, like I think if they were doing a bigger story, like. Let's say a, right. a two-hour type of movie with uh, with a bigger scope and uh, more of the real-life characters in it. Then maybe you would have space for like the Ben Platt character to be like a B plot or a C plot kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, develop the characters in, you know, in those threads and kind of give them the the precedence that they deserve. But making them the spine of the movie just does not make sense, and uh, it's ultimately a letdown. This is the kind of movie where if you if you're really into, like, Canadian politics, and, you know, I don't know how many of our viewer, our listeners are, but... <laughs> Very niche. Maybe this would be something that you would catch when it hits streaming. I, I don't know what streaming services might pick it up. Maybe Netflix Canada will. Watch it during your quarantine, something like that. Right. But it really... It, it's kind of going to end up as a curiosity, I think, mm-hmm. the fact that it has relatively recognizable names in an otherwise, like, mm-hmm. like you were saying, niche story. Um, it's kind of like... It's going to be like a weird little footnote in a lot of these actors' careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's about it, unfortunately. I, I wanted more from it, but yeah, it just wasn't there. Do you know what you should watch, though? Hunters. Oh, yeah, the new show on uh, Prime.
1: Yes, Amazon Prime. So this is a Amazon original uh, created by David Wheel, who is um, running the show, and it's this like first big project. Just a brief overview, it's... A series about Nazi hunters. I didn't know that going into the, the TV series. I just saw a lot of advertisements. You'll see it everywhere. It's There's this big yellow background and there's a red X right in the middle. And it takes place in 1977 in New York City. And it's about a group of Nazi hunters who are sort of uh, going around the states, going after people uh Nazi officers, Nazi doctors who basically obviously took part in the Holocaust. Your grandmother wished to protect you from what Nazis, Jonas.
0: God damn Nazis. There's evil living here. Bad neighbors. They've blinded themselves
1: to us. You can get away with anything in America.
0: So your grandmother tonight created the hunters.
1: We put together a group of Nazi hunters. David Wheel is uh, sort of newish on the scene. There's not many credits to his IMDB, but this actually is sort of, I think, a personal project because his grandparents are uh, Holocaust survivors. So the series follows this young man named Jonah Heidelbaum, played by logan lerman Mm. who is a young kid living in new york city with his grandmother one night uh, someone breaks into his house his grandmother is shot he overhears part of their conversation and he doesn't see the face and the the murder murderer flees and so he gets wrapped up in this conversation he's obviously shook and then he's taken in by this uh Jewish philanthropist and Holocaust survivor named Meyer Offerman, who's played by Al Pacino, who is, I think, uh, one of the best parts about this show. And he gets hooked into this group who call themselves the Hunters. And there's uh, six or seven members in there, and each of them have a special talent or a task that they're um, asked to carry out. These include weapons specialists, signals and electronics experts, uh, a master of disguise. (laughs) And yeah, and they're sort of facing this unknown um, Nazi enemy that is looking to establish the Fourth Reich in the United States. And they've infiltrated uh, various levels of government, uh, various levels of businesses and whatnot. And so we kind of go through the events through um, Jonah's eyes, where we're learning about this new world, we're learning about all these Nazi atrocities, we're learning about the history of the hunters, and then they go through this uh, progression. I'm only two episodes in, so I haven't seen the whole thing, but so far it's been really, it's been quite good. There's another plot, a secondary plot, about Millie Morris, who is an FBI agent, who is investigating the death of an old lady, who is revealed to be a Nazi chemist and she is sort of uncovering this sort of hunters versus Nazis war, I guess, as it unravels. It's a mini series, only 10 episodes, so if you have a chance, I think this is a great series to binge. It is way more violent than I thought it would be. it is it is unflinchingly violent oh yeah Um, there are people getting stabbed in the eye there are lots of scenes uh, depicted in Auschwitz Uh, one of the murders that begins a story um, is an old lady who's locked in a shower and then gassed to death just like you know um, at the showers in 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 those concentration camps the tone of the movie has been criticized because for certain parts it's very serious and there're certain parts that take very take liberties with history and then there are parts where it makes it look like a Quentin Tarantino kind of pulp fiction kind of series yeah it feels like
0: it's kind of right like from what i've seen in the marketing it's really riding the line between like an exploitation kind of 1970s exactly uh, here's this cool team who's go. each one's got special abilities but then it's also trying to be kind of uh very serious about exactly the the reasons that the team are doing these things right all
1: that so the first episode is this very straightforward dark thriller kind of true detective style really really dark really grisly But when you get to the second episode, it starts to have a lot of pop culture moments in there where, like, characters are introduced in uh, little, like, segues and, like, mini commercials. Like Suicide Squad style? Yeah, like Suicide Squad, like, with a profile picture and, like, a funny typeface introducing their character and their name and whatnot. And so that's when uh, you start feeling, like hey, this takes elements from exploitation, but it feels like it's juice exploitation because it's about Jews. Right. Uh, the production value is great. Um, the story itself is starting to get really interesting because you get this multi-layered plot. The pacing is a little off. The first episode of the season is 90 minutes. So there's obviously a lot of groundwork to be laid out. I think Logan Lerman's character is one of those characters where like, this young kid has to sort of uh, come to grips with reality where like a lot of his idealism has to be broken down. A lot of his uh, preconceptions about people have to be shattered and then built back up into this like, really um key character as part of the hunters
0: it's kind of like the character that he's been playing in a lot of his movie roles too like he yes. he kind of he is that kid like he he sprung onto the scene with uh, the percy jackson movies and yes. that was very much the the kind of mold he was in and then uh he was in fury from david Ayer, so he was the young kid who joins the tank crew and has to like
1: yep. look up to shia labeouf and brad pitt yeah, so these kind of characters get kind of annoying. The good thing is that Logan Lerman plays them quite well. Al Pacino, though, as sort of like the figurehead of this headhunters, who Logan Lerman's character calls like the the Jewish Bruce Wayne. <laughs> um, he is a highlight. Um, there are a lot of. Uh, Yiddish. There's a lot of German. I- I'm actually really glad that they actually use like actual languages rather than accented English. Oh yeah. Dylan Baker is an American actor, and he plays this uh, American politician who is an undercover Nazi agent. And there are scenes where he speaks German, and I totally appreciate actors who do that. In Holocaust or, or Jewish uh, shows and movies, they tend to show that only white Jews are the ones that are persecuted, but that's not the case historically. So there are right. people from uh, other backgrounds as part of the Hunter. So there's a Vietnam, Asian Vietnam War veteran. There's a uh, black uh, woman who's like this uh, martial arts expert. So it, it, it's quite um, inclusive. Um, there aren't many that I can think of films or TV shows that deal with nazis that have this kind of diversity so i've, I've always really liked that part
0: yeah because we've seen uh seen like some movies that kind of get into the the various uh like cells of people that went after the the nazi stragglers that remained after the war like M- munich does that and the, there was a movie with uh right right Cate Blanchett so- a while back what was that called the debt i think uh and, uh, right, you know, okay. the, the, they've been making them here and there because that was a whole period like post World War Two where these people, these agents were kind of like, you know, chasing down these people. So I don't know how much this show is based on like the real life cases of, of Nazi hunters and how much it's kind of
1: like. Yeah, there is a very strong. Um, sort of historical basis to it. The subplot with the FBI agent uh, discovering that there's a lot of Americans who, or that America's hiding a lot of neo-Nazis, or not neo-Nazis, but Nazis, uh, is part of Operation Paperclip, which is this real-life intelligence uh, operation where a lot of Cold War or Nazi scientists were brought into the U.S. to help them develop all sorts of things and whatnot. So there's that historical background. The production value is great. I, I I really appreciate films that really take you back in time. There are, I think, pockets where the pacing is off because it it t- does tend to be a slow burn. Um, it does tend to be pulp in that there's also like this super Nazi assassin who is just like the creepiest, most deadly person ever who isn't afraid to torture his victims who isn't afraid to um, make uh, sort of uh, make the, the public areas, his sort of like war zone, I guess um, two episodes. And I highly recommend it. Uh, if you're, you know, sitting on your butt, wondering what to watch. I do not know if there's a second season. I don't know for sure if, you know, there even will be one. Uh, but I did want to say that this TV series has been accused by a lot of groups for sort of historical inaccuracies. So the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum really criticized this film or the series because there's a, there's a scene in the series where they showed the Nazis playing human chess with the Jews. And so, so like if a piece takes another piece on the chessboard, the Jews were forced to kill each other. And a lot of these critics have said, you know, Amazon should not renew this season for a sec, this series for a second season because it's uh, dangerous, it's foolish, it's a caricature, it welcomes future Nazi d- deniers and whatnot. And I find this very interesting because I think from the outset, it is very clear that this show is fictional, um, especially with the way they present the hunters as this like vigilante superhero group. In my mind, if you can't differentiate between reality and uh, fiction, there's something wrong with the way you view these sort of vehicles of entertainment.
0: Yeah, well, this this kind of connects to the criticism, some of the criticism that came out of uh, Taika Waititi's movie Jojo Rabbit. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of like, without really saying it in, in so many words, a lot of uh, people who strongly objected to that movie seemed to be of the opinion that you can't depict any kind of nazism or or certainly hitler um, in any kind of comedic light because it 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 seemed like by these people to kind of like normalize or, or apologize for the the horrendous stuff that happened in the, during the holocaust but exactly. i don't
1: i don't know that that argument is is 100% watertight because it's... I don't buy that argument i i think that's a very weak argument for you know, if I'm of the opinion that if you really want to learn about this, go go read a textbook or go watch a documentary. Like this shouldn't be your basis of knowledge.
0: Yeah, like it shouldn't be your only thing. But it's like you know, it's it's the entertainment form, right? You know, of uh, of a broader diet of like actual fact-based
1: stuff. It, you exactly, know? exactly. So if you're not familiar with the history before watching this show, you should be. Um, shame on you if you aren't. To be honest. Um, so that way, I think you you have a better sense of where things are and what things are real or not. I think a lot of the negative reviews about this show are, are people who are uncomfortable with the violence and the depiction and not necessarily critiquing its plot or its character development or its production value or anything else that makes this into what I think is a quite... And an enjoyable show so far.
0: Yeah, and well, it, it sort of reminds me of the line that uh, Tarantino uh, rides as well, where he, he kind of uh, and once upon a time in Hollywood definitely applies here, where he he kind of like ekes out this pretty insane violence against members of the Manson family at the end of that movie. Right. Um. It in a kind of he's kind of like getting back at the the, the Manson family retroactively for their, yes. the violence that they. Uh, that they uh, were responsible for and the murders they committed. And he's kind of right. not rectifying it, but he's uh, he's offering like a little bit of a entertainment antidote to how angry that would make you feel. And I feel like Hunters kind of operates in the same way. Right. Where, you know, we know what the Nazis did and there's a weird kind of like thing in your brain that gets activated when you see Evil people get what's
1: coming to them, even if it's totally fictional. Exactly. And let's make no mistake, every single Nazi depicted in this show is the worst Nazi you've ever met. Yeah. Yeah. And so anything that the characters do to these Nazis, including torture, um, killing them, um, judging them, I I, I think um, there's a bit of, there's a part of you that's kind of rooting for it, even as brutal as it is. I don't know. Um, I think the best villains sort of have like this sympathetic side to them. But this show has presented itself as such like a vigilante superhero team up that you don't really feel that way. Um, Say for like say, going back to our Batman versus Robin sort of analogy there, there are very few times where you feel sympathetic towards the Joker because he's such an awful human being, especially Jared Leto's Joker, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you add another layer to it where, like, maybe this character was tortured, maybe this character was um, a good person turned bad, like in some of the other iterations, you kind of feel feel a little more sympathetic towards him, but there's none of that in this. Right. None. Absolutely none. Right uh al pacino is this like hardline uh nazi hunter and you are supposed to be with him every step of the way logan lerman is your proxy and he's going through the same steps and but i I assume by the end of the show that he's fully on board so we'll have to see though right and is this the only is
0: this the first time that pacino's worked in like a scripted tv show style format in
1: this kind of capacity, I believe so. Yeah. Um, he, he's always done more stage than than um, TV shows. Um, he did do Angels in America, which is like this Mike Nichols mm. short miniseries uh, based on a play by Tony Kushner. And again, it's about um, people living in New York in the Reagan era. And it's about the AIDS epidemic and and the uh, people whose lives intersect right so he did. um so so he has done mini series before but this is i think to date the second one he's only he's done right okay
0: yeah it was, it's um it just goes to show like how the industry has even changed in the past five years where like right. a guy like pacino who you know oscar winner and all of that you know he, even he's doing scripted tv on uh, streaming services now and i mean well, his his recent career has been rockier than most, so it's not like you know it was doing a show on Amazon was below him, right. but Still, it's a, it's an indicator of like where the industry's yeah. at. Well,
1: he did just come off the Irishman, but I agree, he, most of his. Uh, recent films have been more missed than hit yeah
0: okay cool well that's uh that's another one to add to the uh the watch list uh while we're cooped up inside um i haven't been doing as much tv watching i've i've been doing uh i've been finishing up the second season of the expanse on on amazon uh, right but that's been out for a uh, second season of that show came out a few years ago uh, catching up on peaky blinders season five uh, Westworld
1: has w- just started.
0: Yeah, I don't have HBO, so I'm I'm, uh, I'm oh, okay. off the boat on that okay. one. Uh, okay. But the the one thing that I caught up on yesterday, uh, another movie on Criterion Channel actually, uh, that I've had on my list for a long time. Uh, this might this one might be a bit of obscure, but it's a Juliet Binoche movie called Certified Copy. Okay. From the Iranian director Abbas Kiarostami think mm-hmm. probably butchering his name this is a kind of a uh, late in life romance movie that got great reviews when it came out in 2010
1: she mistook you for my husband and i didn't correct her. oh really obviously we make a good couple. what do you think
0: And I I knew very little about it going into it. I just knew that uh, a lot of the critics that I like uh, were raving or had raved about it. Uh, It popped up on a few people's like best of the decade lists. She does a lot of like middle age
1: romance movies.
0: Kind of like Julianne Moore. uh, Yeah. Yeah. she's (laughs) Frances Juliette Moore. (laughs) Uh, And this is very much in that mold. So she uh, Juliette Binoche is in this movie as a, a French woman living in a small town in Tuscany in Italy. And she's an art dealer and she crosses paths with this English writer who has just finished a book about, um, authenticity in art and his oh, no. kind of like, you can see where this is going already. Like this.
1: <laughs> yeah. It sounds pretentious. Yeah. Uh, just wait. <laughs> I <guess>. Oh no.
0: <laughs> All right, go ahead. So the, uh, uh, the, the book that he's written is about how from this, his character's point of view There's no such thing as original art. And even if you're looking at something that was like a copy made by an artisan in like, you know, hundreds of years after the original artwork, original in quotation marks, the original artwork was made, that if the copy is good enough and if enough skill went into trying to copy the original... The copy itself has some artistic value, and so he's trying of like he's kind of trying to say that our hang-ups about originality aren't are kind of like a construct, basically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is a, something that kind of like gets on the nerves of Juliette Binoche's character, uh, and she can't quite explain why. But they they find themselves going off on like a, a walk through uh, through Tuscany, uh, through like the, and they they start crossing paths with. Uh, all of these uh, newlywed couples who are all getting married on the same day because there's like a uh, uh, this artifact in nearby museum that's supposed to give newlywed couples good luck during their marriage. Mm-hmm. And as they walk, you get this kind of sense of like the the before trilogy uh, from Richard mm-hmm. Linklater, right? Okay, where the conversation just kind of flows naturally. But it in the this movie, it takes on a whole other category where uh, they get mistaken. Juliette Binoche and this this writer, James Miller, uh, get mistaken for a married couple. And they kind of play into this and they start play acting as if they are in fact married. And they start having these arguments that blow up like real arguments with each other over like uh, a son that's not actually theirs and uh, like the the husband being away too long for work and stuff like that. And none of it's real, but it it's kind of meant to evoke the 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 real hangups that these characters have, right, and it links back to the whole idea of like the book that um the author has written about the authenticity of things mm-hmm. and so they're having this relationship that's kind of like a copy of a relationship, but it's almost as valid as a real relationship because it's so charged with emotion
1: and stuff like that, yeah, Julia Binoche has a she, all her movies tend to be like super realistic like all the fights she has with, like, characters in her movies tend to be quite real. Like, uh, she did that uh, Clouds of Seals Maria. Yes, did you see that I one? love that one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that has, a, like, a lot of authentic, like, arguments between her and Kristen Stewart's character, and, and it just feels very real. and feels very grounded in reality. It feels like a an argument you'd have with your friend.
0: Yes, and she, like, she has this amazing range where, where she can kind of, like, uh, switch back and forth between like total sunny happiness and just like the depths of anger and you never know what she's going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, director, this Iranian director, Abbas Kiarostami, he holds the camera on his actors for huge lengths of time, long, long takes, and just kind of invites you to sort of look at the actor's face and kind of see all the, the emotions kind of playing off it. And, you know, admittedly it's a quiet, it's, it, it's a drama. It's a very talky, kind of thing it's not for everybody mm-hmm. um, the one interesting thing though is that the actor that they chose for the James Miller guy the writer that uh, who's the um, the kind of romantic foil for Juliette Binoche he had when when he popped up on camera I thought for sure that I'd seen him in like three or four things but it turns out this was his first film role right and this whole time his career leading up to this he'd been an opera singer oh okay. and the uh, the director had uh, been invited to direct an opera in France and had worked with this guy, um, William Schimmel, I think his name is, or Schimmel. And he's an English English opera singer and just liked him so much on this opera that they were working on that he invited him to uh, play the lead or the, the co-lead in this movie that he was working on. Mm-hmm. Schimmel's got this kind of like Jeremy Irons kind of vibe about him. Mm-hmm. So he felt like the kind of guy who like... You're 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 convinced that he was like an imperial officer in a Star Wars movie or he had played like a erudite gangster in like a Guy Ritchie movie or something. But uh, it's not that at all. Like he Mm -hmm. this is his first film role. And he's done he's done like, I think, two other movies after this one, because I guess he enjoyed Mm -hmm. himself enough on this that he figured oh well, I can do opera most of the time, but uh, pop up in the occasional movie. Um, And just a a really interesting kind of little side story to this uh, this whole thing. And, uh, I would, if you have Criterion Channel, uh, I would recommend checking it out. Uh, I hadn't seen anything else by this director before. He's kind of, he's, his name is often held up there on the list of like, you know, best, uh, the like top 25 world cinema names to, to kind of get into. Uh, so I could, I could definitely see myself checking out more of his back
1: catalog now that I've seen this first, uh, one of his. Right. Um, I just want to finish off with The Boss Baby.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, I did not expect that. This This episode is all, it, like, you can tell that the, the the global pandemic thing is wreaking havoc on our programming because yeah. we're going from, like, a Criterion Channel romantic drama to The Boss Baby. Have you seen this? I but the, the original animated thing from, like, a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, no. I heard it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's not good.
1: <laughs> so this is one of those movies where, like, no amount of baby and puppy cuteness could save this like really bizarre film with so many plot holes wasn't this nominated
0: for a, a best fe- uh, animated feature the year it came out no way i think it was i think it was in the running against like kubo and the two strings or something oh my like
1: god that. okay
0: i remember being angry
1: about it i know okay that. yes it was nominated for best animated feature oh god okay so continue academy like- <laughs> words and Okay, uh, well, okay, this changes things because I did not know that because I, I finished the movie and I was like, wow, I cannot believe I actually sat through this thing. Even... Uh, what compelled you? Well, it's just like my mom and I were just kind of sitting around the couch and we we just wanted to watch something funny before we went to bed. Okay. Because, yeah, we had watched something uh, like that was more violent or, or heavy before that. Uh, and we're like, all right, fine. And okay, yeah, so... Uh, I don't even know where to begin with this movie. But anyway, it's uh, this boy named Tim. um, His parents have a baby. The baby comes in wearing a suit. It's never really addressed uh, by the parents. Um, They don't think it's weird at all. And this baby, voiced by Alec Baldwin, works for this company called Baby Corp. And Baby Corp. is trying to figure out what is going on with this company called Puppy Co, who's Tim's parents work for. And Puppy Co has come out with this puppy that stays a puppy forever, uh, maintaining its cuteness. And they're afraid that this cute puppy is going to take attention away from all the cute babies in the world. I've got to deal with the KID.
0: You can talk.
1: Uh, Goo Goo Gaga.
0: No, you can really talk.
1: Fine. I can talk. Now let's see if you can listen. Get me a double espresso and see if there's some place around here with decent sushi. I'd kill for a spicy tuna roll right about now.
0: (laughs) Right. So it's one of these kids' movies that's trying to like explain how, well, uh, well explain and not explain how like human reproduction works.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you can predict the plot right away. Tim and Boss Baby have an adversarial relationship at the beginning they learn to love each other they work start working together there's a a villain that unites them this villain is this former boss baby that grew into an adult who is called francis e francis and void by voiced by steve buscemi okay Uh, so it's just a bizarre film like it it, the animation's cute the babies are cute but i walked I finished the movie and I was like it threw me for a loop. I had no idea what was going on. It is there's so many plot holes and it's so half-baked that I think you'd have to be on drugs to actually enjoy this movie. <laughs>
0: Well, it's like, yeah. And I remember this kind of like, I remember it coming out and I remember like seeing the trailer for it and just being horrified. Like I couldn't, it it felt instantly like one of those kids movies that's just kind of like slapped together and you know, the, the tired parents dragged their kids to it on a Saturday to get them out of the house kind of thing. But then like it got nominated for this, for this award. I think Netflix made a spinoff series based on it that was like, yes, a sequel, like way lower budget and the animation took a huge hit in quality
1: from what I saw. Uh, so so this is like an animated film that I feel um was nominated because they just needed to pick five films to nominate.
0: That's crazy. I mean I I, I hope that maybe like cuz I don't always know what goes into the animated category in particular right sometimes there's like I know this sometimes there's like some like technical innovation that like animators know about and the animators are like oh wow okay so boss baby is actually terrible as a movie but like they did something with animating the way the baby's clothes kind of look like real clothes (laughs) or something there's nothing maybe that that, (laughs) I'm still surprised that like that that this if you were gonna pick something that was kind of like inoffensive
1: and it is offensively bad (laughs) okay uh like i said like it, the animation's good uh i think that's the bare minimum for animated films these days like the, the animation itself has to be good technically it's good right but it's kind of like inside out but without any of the internal emotional or plot logic that comes with it there's right. nothing there's no revelations about anything but it's one of those movies you sit your kid down for 90 minutes and say you know what just enjoy this um, if they, if you ask them about the plot, they probably couldn't tell you, but I mean, it's like, Hey, cute babies and puppies. Who doesn't like that? I
0: side note, the, uh, Pixar is starting the, uh, advanced marketing campaign for their movie soul. That's coming out this summer. That looks so good. And, like it, when you're, when you're dealing with like one of these movies, that's supposed to kind of pick apart some sort of like secret process, you know, like inside out did it. And, uh, uh right. you know, to an extent, I guess Bob ba- boss baby is trying to do that, but, it's not yeah, it's like
1: visualizing emotions and and spiritual journeys, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. But this one is like it seems very much like a uh, if not like a direct sequel to Inside Out, but like cut from the exact same cloth of like right. you know, try, trying to take something that's incredibly difficult to visualize and, and just like capturing it.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah, but that could be that could be the huge hit this year for for that. For l- listeners out there like we're just gonna be all over the place right now because we're just catching up on streaming um, movies and TV shows that we've missed because there's no um, real releases coming up. Although I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the movie industry after this. I really do think there's a paradigm shift coming in both the way we live our lives and obviously the way we consume content. Um, I think working from home is just gonna be so much more normalized than before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you th- if you think that you know normal inter- human interaction is going down the drain, I think this corona thing is just gonna this COVID thing is just gonna it just like for even forward that uh uh that paradigm shift even more.
0: Yeah. It's uh it's kind of a crazy time
1: to be alive. It, it's kind of exciting if you think about it. Like it's like okay, maybe exciting is not the right word because people are dying. But like it is such I think historical moment. Like we are living in a very key time in, like, human civilization, how we interact with people. Like, it's just, like, un- unprecedented times. I-, I think that's, like, the biggest thing. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think the the general consensus
0: is that we're all going to get through it. Yeah, of course. Us poor um, movie buffs, you know, we'll find ways of of uh, finding the things that we want to watch. And, <laughs> exactly. whether you know, maybe it's, maybe a little bit more of it is done from the couch, but, uh uh, you can you can bet that we here at the Extra Buttery Podcast will try to keep you as informed as possible about what uh, what we think about all the things that are hitting us whenever they finally hit us. Right. So, final word: recommend Hunters, don't recommend Run This Town or Boss Baby. Yes. Um, <laughs> recommend Certified Copy if you have it on uh, cri- if you have Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, it's a bit niche, but uh, it's it's got a real some real value if you get. Got
1: some patience for it. And I think we're going to be continuing to make recommendations um, on any streaming service that we have access to. So... Um, be sure to listen in. I think we're gonna be piling up all the the things that we've missed out on. Yeah, so this, uh, the next couple of weeks, our next couple of episodes might be
0: a little bit more like a trip down memory lane kind of thing. Uh, maybe some older stuff that, uh, we've, we've always wanted to talk about, but
1: never got around to it. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: I'll finally get to watch, uh, Silence of the Lambs, properly.
1: <laughs> yes, please do watch Silence of the Lambs. I think there's, I, we could do a whole episode on it because I think there's so much to pick through, but, uh. Anyway, I think that's all the time we have. So coming to you from Vancouver, my name is Jason Chan, And coming to you from
0: Toronto, my name is Robert Snow. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.